Welcome back to another episode looking at the Gospel Topics essays. This is a big one. This is a good one. I'm worried we're going to be here until midnight, it being 7.30 a.m. right now, uh, Mountain Time. It's the Book of Mormon translation. Uh, we will not take your entire day, but we will uh, absolutely dive into this essay, talk about our personal experiences as we learned about these things. And, of course, as the other two hopefully show, we'll do so in a, in a respectful but opinionated manner. I think we all have uh, different lived experiences with the, the subject matter at hand today. So joining me today is, in person actually, is our friend Anthony Miller. Yes, uh, I, it's good to be here today. I, I'd mentioned that um, I've gotten feedback from people that have listened to some of our episodes Across the spectrum of belief, uh, nuanced believers, even more orthodox believers, all the way uh, to people that are critical. And we've gotten pretty good feedback. At least I've gotten pretty good feedback. So I think we're probably doing okay. We're doing all right. If you have some feedback that could be feedback for improvement, let us know as well. I know that it's easier to tell someone they're doing a good job than a bad job. So we'd love to hear from you as well. And joining us, not in person, sadly, but maybe one day, Bill Real. Miles and miles away, here I am, and grateful again to dive into another essay. Awesome. And I'm Alan. So uh, we're going to get right ahead and jump into the subject matter at hand because there's a lot to cover today. Uh, I'll go ahead and read that first paragraph. So Book of Mormon Translation. Joseph Smith said that the Book of Mormon was, quote, the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. And a man would get near to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. The Book of Mormon, uh, end quote. See, I'm, get, I'm, learning. Yeah, I'm learning. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. The Book of Mormon came into the world through a series of miraculous events. Much can be known about the coming forth of the English, English text of the Book of Mormon through a careful study of statements made by Joseph Smith, his scribes, and others closely associated with the translation of the Book of Mormon. That first paragraph, how's it looking, Anthony? So, um, I think I'm not quite sure what most correct book means. Um, you know, I'm, uh, and, and so I, th I think we need to figure out what, what that means. And, and maybe um, it was common to speak in hyperbole or embellishment, and maybe we should just acknowledge that that was a common way to speak. You know, the most correct book, closest to God, and so forth. But the other thing is, is it says um, that we get nearer to God, uh, this is Joseph speaking, that we get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than in, in, with any other book. And, um, you know, Latter-day Saint adherents uh, follow priests when they think of precepts that get them closer to God um, It seems to be a lot of post Book of Mormon precepts like two different priesthoods Aaronic and Melchizedek that doesn't exist in the Book of Mormon the theology of the Godhead with three three distinct personages with the father and the son being physical uh, physically resurrected beings you know our, our temp present uh, temple day uh, present-day temple ordinances and sealings uh, our interpretations of the word of wisdom that we feel like get us closer to God, um, how we interpret tithes and fast offerings, the theologies of a pre-mortal life and the kingdoms of glory, you know, the expanded covenant path. These, these are all precepts that I, I think a, a contemporary Latter-day Saint would feel like 
gets them closer or nearer to God, um, but they don't exist in the Book of Mormon. Well, to play the, I guess, what's the opposite of devil's advocate? To play the angel's advocate. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, line upon line, things are being revealed a little bit at a time is, uh, I guess, most correct. Yeah, man getting near to God by abiding by its precepts. Yeah. Okay. No, I see what you're saying. So I see what you're saying. There's there's all of these things that do get us near to God in the church uh, that are not mentioned whatsoever uh, within the book. Yeah. So maybe we need to return to considering what are the primary precepts in the Book of Mormon. Ooh. Uh, as opposed to focusing on all these post Book of Mormon things, or maybe we just um, reconcile that Joseph maybe spoke in hyperbole quite a bit. Mm. Bill, any thoughts on that? Um, just this other sentence that says the Book of Mormon came into the world through a series of miraculous events. Uh, and sh- I'm sorry. And, th- and then the next one, much can be known about the coming forth of the English text. Maybe just a recognition that the essay starts off saying like, look, there was some reformed Egyptian on, uh, on these metal plates. And that's one item. And what we're talking about today is distinguishing that item from the English text that Joseph Smith translates onto the manuscript papers uh, with a scribe. And to understand that there are going to be, they're almost setting us up to know there's going to be some differences um, between that Reformed Egyptian and this English translation. And we're going to talk about how we got that English translation. I, I just think that if you're aware of the messiness of Mormonism, you're beginning to sense like, okay, there's, there's some difference here. But if you're Orthodox... Uh, again, they're trying to prepare you, I think, to start to wrestle with that. Yeah, and the essay now jumps into more of the story, the timeline of uh, receiving the plates. So, Bill, uh, can you read that, uh, the next paragraph for us? Uh, it is titled, By the Gift and Power of God. Joseph Smith reported that on the evening of September 21st, 1823, while he prayed in the upper room of his parents' small log home in Palmyra, uh, New York, an angel who called himself Moroni, appeared and told Joseph that God had a work for you to do, unquote. He informed Joseph that, quote, there was a book deposited written upon gold plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent and the source from whence they sprang, unquote. The book could be found in a hill not far from the Smith family farm. There was no, this was no ordinary history, for it contained, quote, the fullness of the everlasting gospel as delivered by the Savior, unquote. There's that fullness of the gospel, right? With Without all yeah. the all the doctrine that you outlined in all the, the previous paragraph. All the Mormon doctrine, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, one thing that I keyed on here is the angel called himself Moroni. Uh, don't want to belabor this point too much, uh, but it, it did strike me as as I read through the, the history and Lucy Mack Smith's um, 1853 account of, of the history. Um, even before uh, Joseph's death, he used um, a different name. Do you guys know this? There's a different name for, for Moroni, the angel that appeared to him. Yeah, actually, the church has come out with another little mini essay about uh, the angel sometimes being called Nephi and sometimes being called Moroni. What does that essay but what is the, what's the reason given? Uh, it just attributes some sort of mix-up that uh, attributes the angels to being Nephi that got perpetuated for a period of time, but that it was always actually Moroni. 
Yeah, it's it was published. I mean, Joseph Smith being the editor of the Times and Seasons before his death, he he published uh, an account in the Times and Seasons saying it was Nephi. Yeah. Uh, his mother and her, like I mentioned, her 1853 edition of her son's history was published by Orson Pratt in Liverpool. And that used the name uh, Nephi as well. Here's the quote from Times and Seasons, quote, He called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me and that his name was Nephi. That is the quote that was also published in the first edition of the Pearl of Great Price in 1851. A few kind of interesting anecdotes about the Moroni-Nephi debacle is one, uh, that 1853 book by Lucy Mack Smith was actually was not liked by Brigham Young. And I went scouring and searching through old Deseret newspapers uh, digitally on BYU's website actually yesterday and found the 1865 Deseret News where Brigham Young asked uh, members in Spanish Fork to fork over their their copies of that book because he wanted to, to purge it. Um, get it off of the oh, the face of the of the very, earth. Very interesting. In, in, an interesting story, Alan. We've got a first edition of that book here in the pawn shop that I manage. Ooh. Uh, Lucy Max History. Uh, Brigham Brigham Young referred to it as a tissue of lies. Uh, he didn't take the time, I think, to read the book. I don't think we really have any deep uh, conflict between uh, LDS theology and and the uh, Brighamite movement that goes west versus what Lucy Mack puts in there. But there were two different sizes made at first. There was a larger copy that was given to a lot of the higher leaders. And then there was a really small first edition that the average member could purchase and afford. And he asked the saints to destroy that book. And a lot of the lay members just went out and destroyed their little ones, which made them quite rare. So the book that we have here today... Uh, it's worth about uh, eight thousand bucks. Wow, that's awesome! Uh, so it's just yeah, just kind of a little interesting side note. But a tissue of lies is what uh, Brigham uh, considered that book to be. Wow, that's very interesting. That th- this quote of Nephi being named over Moroni isn't isn't the sole or or even one of the main reasons. I don't I don't think that Brigham wanted this this book removed. There's there's a few other things in it that uh, actually are relevant to this conversation as well. Uh, Joseph's father. Um, having uh, Lehi's dream, basically. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's that's detailed in this, that his father would tell the story of the dream of the Tree of Life, and there's an iron rod, and uh, a lot of it, the very same phraseology within that uh, that retelling in that book. So there's, ah, Brigham didn't like it. Brigham didn't like it very yeah, much. Yeah, I have all these apologetic reconciliations going through my mind that I read uh, to to try to figure out how to reconcile uh, Joseph Smith Sr. having Lehi's dream before the Book of Mormon uh, was was uh, scripted or dictated. Yeah, I I remember that stuff. There's a couple things that I would point out about this paragraph. First of all, uh, my uh, mother and stepfather served a mission in Palmyra, and I went out to New York and visited them. And I uh, went to the framed home, and I also went to the log home, uh, and I discovered that actually... Um, a lot of the gospel art and the narratives and the movies that we see depict um, the angel, whether it's Moroni or Nephi, appearing to Joseph in the framed home. But actually, the framed home didn't exist in 1823. It was a log home. It was about a thousand square feet log home. And there was likely uh, two upper rooms in this uh, log home, one room for the boys, uh, one room for the girls. 
And so I think that uh, with regard to the log home, we should point out that we might need to consider that when the angel visited uh, Joseph throughout the whole night, you know, had the same discourse three different times, uh, light totally filled the room, uh, that Joseph's brothers were in that same room, uh, and it was a small thousand foot uh, cabin with uh, the, the sisters, the girls uh, in the other upper room, as well as Joseph's parents. And it's quite possible, I think we should consider that it's quite possible that if one of uh, Joseph's uh, brothers woke up, that maybe they would not have seen uh, the same thing that Joseph was seeing. And it's possible that maybe this was a visionary experience as opposed to an actual, actual visitation. I don't know that that really materially changes everything, but it does get depicted to us as a physical visitation. Um, and that tends to be a little bit complicated when you consider, you know, the complexities of a small log home uh, with Joseph in a room with his brothers. Um, the other thing I'd give a shout out here uh, for Team Heartland because uh, because this paragraph said uh, that the Book of Mormon uh, was uh, with regard to the an account of the former inhabitants of this continent. Uh, for those that don't know, there's a debate among uh, LDS adherents as to whether the Book of Mormon uh, events happened in the North American continent or whether they happen down in Mexico or Central or South America. Uh, and this paragraph seems to give a tip or a hint to Team Heartland. How many Hilcomores are there? That's one of the big questions, right? Yep. Yep. The, the debate <laughs> rages. And then finally, you know, it says the fullness of the everlasting gospel as delivered by the Savior. And... Um, you know, so that again goes back to what we were initially talking about: what what constitutes the fullness of the everlasting gospel? And if it's delivered by the Savior, does that mean that we really need to focus on what's in Third Nephi, uh, with the sermon at the temple? And uh, so, in any event, those are interesting things from this paragraph. Love it. All right, we we want to get to the actual translation, so we're getting closer. We're getting closer. I'll read this next paragraph real quick. The angel charged Joseph Smith to translate the book from the ancient language in which it was written. The young man, however, had very little formal education and was incapable of writing a book on his own, let alone translating an ancient book written from an unknown language known in the Book of Mormon as Reformed Egyptian. Joseph's wife, Emma, insisted that at the time of translation, Joseph, quote, could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter let alone dictate a book like the Book of Mormon. So now the, the great dumbing down of Joseph begins. Um, he's, he's painted to be very uneducated, very dim-witted almost, and maybe I'm putting words in the essay's mouth. But it, it's starting to paint a picture of how impossible uh, this could have been uh, for, for him to write and, and gives, the, um, gives the quote from Emma. And the interesting thing about the quote from Emma and juxtaposing it against the, the, the quote from Lucy Mack Smith in her book, is a lot of apologists, uh, they will point at the Lucy Mack Smith quote of Nephi and Lehi's dream and saying, well, she was towards the end of her life. Um, she was old. This happened decades after the events. She sh you know, the quote shouldn't be trusted. Uh, she, she's misremembering. Um, the fact of the matter is that that 1853 book, at the time that it was published, 
Lucy Mack was 77 years old, but it was based on manuscripts that were written when she was 69 years old. And this Emma quote comes from a book that was uh, written by her son, Joseph Smith III, um, just a few months before Emma died. And Emma, at the time, I have it written, so I'll make sure I don't it misspeak It was in 1879. Here. Yeah, and Emma was 75 years old at the time. So it's it, you have to hold everybody to the same standard. And, and I think that's a lot of, of the ways that some of these reconciliations work, is they only work if you if you look at them one at a time and don't apply the same standard across the board. Yeah, and I really think that we need to take that account of Emma from 1879 with somewhat of a grain of salt because, um, you know, when we read through these, it's important to read the footnotes, but it's also important to go on to the cited sources. And in this cited source, this last testimony uh, uh, from 1879 of Emma, she denies Joseph uh, as practicing polygamy. And so there are things in that account uh, that are inaccurate uh, for whatever motivation. And so when Emma says that Joseph, you know, couldn't uh, dictate a coherent or well-worded letter, let alone dictate a book like the Book of Mormon, that um, we probably need to take that with a a grain of salt as well. I think we'd also remember, um, you know, in the... In our review of the First Vision essay uh, in 1832, where Joseph wrote a letter uh, that same year to a friend uh, that he felt imprisoned by paper, pen, and ink, and a crooked, broken, scattered, and imperfect language, he called the written word a, quote, narrow, uh, little narrow prison. Um, There is evidence that Joseph actually could uh, parse things very well. And I'd also indicate that, um, you know, when you study Joseph's history, it's it's a lot. It's very interesting. We knew that he studied the Bible. um, And while he didn't have an extensive formal education, he was homeschooled. And we know that his brother Hiram Smith and extended family members of him studied at Dartmouth College you know, an institution of higher learning. And we know that there are some similarities to the theologies and ideas uh, taught to Joseph's family at Dartmouth College that would eventually uh, become part of the Restoration theology. We also know that Joseph's grandfather, Asel Smith, was an influential participant with the Congregationalists and with the Universalists. He was a leader and he wrote an extensive paper regarding his perception of the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2 as well. So Joseph's family was not illiterate in any way, and I don't think Joseph was either. And I, I would have to believe with Joseph's family and being involved in these things and Hiram going to Dartmouth College that uh, theology and a discussion of religious thought were deeply part of his heritage and his upbringing and his education uh, in the home. And I think we need to take that into consideration. We can uh, start the next paragraph. Joseph received the plates in September 1827 and the following spring in Harmony, Pennsylvania, began translating them in earnest with Emma and his friend Martin Harris, serving as his scribes. The resulting English transcription known as the Book of Lehi and referred to by Joseph Smith as written on 116 pages, was subsequently lost or stolen. As a result, Joseph Smith was rebuked by the Lord and lost the ability to translate for a short time. What are your thoughts on the lost 116 pages, Bill? Um, 
something interesting comes in here that I'm, I don't really want to get into now. I want to get into it later. But the the idea that Martin is working on this early section, um, it, it gets lost. Joseph Smith has a seer stone. He's able to, through this stone, discern things. And yet, for some reason, he doesn't think to use this stone to find the 116 pages. Um, it, it seems to be kind of a little wrench in the story. Like, if we're following the logic, as a critic who's reading this, you go like, oh, uh, Martin gives these pages to his wife. His wife doesn't believe in the mission of Joseph Smith and in the Book of Mormon. And so she is trying to test Joseph. Joseph has to come up with some reason why these 116 pages are gone. And the reason he gives isn't really rational if while these pages are lost, he also has a seer stone, which is able to find lost items. Right. So that would be a a post-learning about this uh, shelf item. For me, uh, like I mentioned with the other essays, my experience with the essays were greatly affected by what I was carrying on my metaphorical shelf where I set things aside in faith that I would receive further light and knowledge someday. And the 116 pages story was a big thing on my shelf because, you know, I understand how hard it is to forge someone's handwriting for a signature, not because I've done it myself. I was going to say, no, you no, have a no, previous have, profession no, we don't know about? No, no, I haven't done it myself, but I, I know that it's easy to catch a forgery of a, hand, uh, of a handwritten signature. And these 116 pages were handwritten uh, in, in the scribe's handwriting, a lot of it in Martin Harris's handwriting. And so for this narrative that, that these evil and designing men would take these 116 pages and they would go through and modify the text to catch Joseph, you know, in a slip if he retranslated uh, those 116 pages with some alternative text or information, would have to suppose that someone could forge not just a signature, but an entire page of text um, on paper that looked exactly the same color and tone and everything as the other pages uh, that they would replace because they couldn't just forge a paragraph and cut and paste it in. Like they'd have to forge an entire page and then cut that in. And to think that somehow people couldn't tell it was a forgery. Like I had a really hard time with this narrative that about the 116 pages that didn't make any sense to me. And I shelved it. Um, And, uh, and here it shows up in the essay. I, I just want to say I, real quick, I, I struggled with that too, you two. Like I remember being completely in the church, all in, uh, fully believing, attending every week and, and loving Mormonism and hearing the story and going like something here doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't quite feel right. Yep. I, I feel the same way. The, 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 forgery aspect of it i actually looked at more of the the um the opportunity joseph had at that time to say i can translate this again it will be identical and that will show those critics i i just produced the same exact translation twice to me the fact that he can't do that uh yes he gives a an excuse for it that i bought for a long time but the fact that he can't do that can't produce shows me that he was dictating it and he was telling a story and he literally could not reproduce it the same exact way. What more powerful witness to the critics and to Martin Harris himself 
if Joseph says, no worries, I'll just, I'll just produce it again. Not a big deal. It's so interesting, uh, the spectrum of experiences that we have. Yeah. Uh, when we encounter things, we shelve things uh, in different ways, and then we encounter information like these in the essays, and we all have this different spectrum of experience with similarities but differences. It's just very interesting to me, just on something as basic as the 116 pages. Yeah, and, and we've skipped the very beginning of this paragraph where it says, you know, he, he received the plates in 1827. The, the, it doesn't quite talk about how he went back to the hill uh, each September uh, to, uh, to try to receive them. And Moroni was giving him lessons and saying it's not time yet. And he, uh, Alvin, his brother, was, was the one that was going to be with him, but he passed. And so Emma was with him. But again, it's like when, when I sit and think about, okay, did Emma go up to the, to the hill with him? What, what cooler witness would there be to have Moroni appear to Emma? When I go to the hill in my mind and try to transport back in time, using a metaphorical Bill and Ted's phone box or phone, phone booth to get there. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Black Stallion. So um, I, Wild Stallion. What? Anyway, the band of, in the movie, it doesn't matter. But I, I go back to that in my mind and I say, I just look, I see Joseph saying, Emma, no, 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 you wait here. You wait here. I'll be right back. Um, you can't come up to the hill to get, to get the plates with me. It just like, I don't know why for 30 plus years, it just, it didn't occur to me that like, man, this looks, this looks really bad. Just even the way that he got the plates. He had, he had, yeah. So, you know, obviously uh, part uh, of the thought of these multiple years is that it gave Joseph time to consider, um, you know, if you assume uh, that the Book of Mormon has some of Joseph Smith in it, it it gave him time to consider some of the stories and narratives uh, that, that he would include in that. Um, and then there's the story, you know, that if you touch, he touched the plates and it shocked him, you know, and then he was told that if people saw the plates that weren't supposed to see the plates, you know, they would be struck dead, which makes you kind of think like when people were chasing him and he was running with the plates, whether they, whether they weighed 40 or 50 pounds or way more because they were actual gold or had some gold in it or something like that. Why wouldn't he have just turned around and like showed, showed them, them the, the plates? plates and it's would, like a weapon. Yeah. Just shocked them all down and they would have died or something. <laughs> but um, in any event, yeah. It, it, uh, anyway, it's interesting. All right. Timeline uh, becomes a, a key question in this next paragraph. Anthony, can you read that Joseph began translating? Joseph began translating again in 1829. So this is after the 116 pages. And almost all of the present Book of Mormon text was translated during a three-month period between April and June of that year. His chief scribe during these months was Oliver Cowdery, a school teacher from Vermont, who learned about the Book of Mormon while boarding with Joseph's parents in Palmyra. Called by God in a vision, Cowdery traveled to Harmony, uh, this would be Pennsylvania, to meet with Joseph Smith and investigate further. Of his experience as a scribe, Cowdery wrote, These were days never to be forgotten, to sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven. Bill, could you talk to us briefly about the Oliver Cowdery connection to Ethan Smith and how much weight you personally hold in that connection? Oliver Cowdery was, uh, I think it came from the same area that Ethan 
did. Ethan Smith is the author of the book View of the Hebrews. Uh, that's important because critics claim that view of the Hebrews has a lot of similarities to the Book of Mormon. And there's this debate among critics and apologists that, uh, and by the way, there's a late reference that Joseph Smith did have access to view of the Hebrews. The question becomes whether he had access to it uh, before translating or whether he only had access to it after, you know, years later after the Book of Mormon had already been published. But view of the Hebrews has a lot of similarities in theme concepts that the Book of uh, Mormon has in terms of having two tribes that are warring against each other that come from across the waters. And some of the themes that you find in the Book of Mormon are also in view of the Hebrews. Uh, as that debate has incurred, it's at least of note that B.H. Roberts, uh, assistant church historian, uh, a member of the 70, considered kind of a general authority, one tier below the Quorum of the Twelve, thought there was some uh, connection enough that it was significant and worth noting. Uh, and maybe that's, I guess, as much as I would feel comfortable saying. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you for walking us through that. You know, where this paragraph begins talking about uh, he he started again in 1829 translating. So a number of uh, multiple, multiple months, if not over a year, I, I could be fuzzy on my exact timeline, but more time goes by. Uh, and if you look at what was what was written in those 116 pages, it was the book of Lehi. So it's it's <laughs> cynically, you could say it's what a coincidence. Faithfully, you could say um, how miraculous that uh, Nephi knew to write the same record and include it on the plates and Mormon and Moroni knew to abridge uh, Nephi's record of the same exact timeline as his father so that we didn't lose that story. So essentially, Joseph was able to rewrite the book of Lehi as the book of Nephi and tell the same story without being accused of having forged or changed, changed the story himself. Looking at the three-month period between April and June, the majority, almost all of the present Book of Mormon text was translated during this three-month period. That's that's trying to put it on a very short timeline of, of how miraculous it was. But I, I have some credit to give to John Hamer for walking through some of the math um, on an episode he did with John DeLynn on Mormon stories. So he walks through the following math. The Book of Mormon is 273,725 words long. You divide that by 85 days. And that means that Joseph could would need to dictate 3,200 words per day, but that's not the, the bottleneck. The bottleneck is actually writing it down legibly. Um, experts say that about 20, excuse me, 1,200 words per hour for legible handwriting is about the limit that you could that you could do. That amounts to two hours and 40 minutes per day of dictating to Oliver Cowdery, and we, those days were also. Uh, explained as long and arduous. And so the expectation that they only worked for two hours and, and 40 minutes during that time, it probably is not true. They probably worked much longer. So that even slowens, slowens, <laughs> slows down. Slows down. I'm, I'm sticking with slowens. Okay. Uh, that even slowens the pace uh, of, of transcription needed. He also had experience from dictating the 116 pages. And so the, the speed would have, uh, would have heightened at that point. Um, and look, you know, he, he had been thinking about this for, for five years. We know that as early as 1823, 
um, in Lucy Max Smith's um, biography, she talks about Joseph telling stories of ancient Americans uh, here or Native Americans in 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 this in the geography around him and and what uh, animals they had and the weapons they used. And he started dictating all of that and telling stories to his family as early as 1823 before he had the plates. So the timeline itself isn't as miraculous. I'm not personally worried about explaining how he did it rather than it, it doesn't have to be a miraculous. Um, it, it doesn't have to be explained away by a, a heavenly uh, intervention, if you will. Right. Cause it's three hours a day of transcription basically. Yeah. Now I, in the doctrine and covenants, it seems to um, give us a hint uh, as to how the translation process worked, you know, with the uh, section uh, where Oliver Cowdery uh, attempts to translate, whether it's with the stone or whether it's with his divining rod of Aaron or whatnot, you know, it's hard to say. But, um, but Joseph uh, indicates, or the Lord through Joseph indicates, that the process is, is to ponder it and study it in your mind and then it will come to you. And it seems to me that how that gives a hint as to how this process worked. Maybe uh, Joseph would study, ponder it out in his mind, go read his Bible, um, pray about it, go outside in the woods, skip some rocks, uh, pray about it, ponder it, whatnot, study other materials and so forth, ponder about it, and then come back and then and then do some more uh, dictation. It makes sense that if these were long and arduous days, but less than three hours of actual transcription, uh, that you would add all those other things into the process. All right. All right. Next paragraph. The manuscript that Joseph Smith dictated to Oliver Cowdery and others is known today as the original manuscript, about 28% of which still survives. This manuscript corroborates Joseph Smith's statements that the manuscript was written within a short time frame and that it was dictated from another language. For example, it includes errors and that suggest the scribe heard words incorrectly rather than misread words copied from another manuscript. In addition, some grammatical constructions that are more characteristic of Near Eastern languages than English appear in the original manuscript, suggesting that the base language of the translation was not English. All right. Who wants to jump in? So I'll, I'll jump in. I think if you go back, if you decide to take a deep dive into this um, and look at these older manuscripts and compare them to what we have currently, um, it, it becomes clear that many of the, of the transcription errors were uh, an error uh, of writing down a word because you heard it wrong. Um, but there's also evidence of, of mistranscription uh, uh, that's not writing something down wrong that you heard wrong, but um, but uh, misreading something and then writing it down. So it, it seems to indicate that there are also some errors that indicate that there was some sort of additional text uh, that was being referred to because there are some written uh, errors as well. As far as these uh, grammatical constructions, I think if people are willing to do a deeper dive into the degree to which there is intertextuality between the Book of Mormon and the King James Version of the Bible, including the Apocrypha, as well as the different kinds of themes and language and constructions that were common to Joseph's day in books like The Late War, in the first book of Napoleon, the view of, he of the Hebrews, as we've mentioned before, 
uh, as well as to be aware of what the mound builder myths were of the day that John Hamer has uh, done some good work on. Um, they might find more plausible explanations of the kinds of things that essay is referring to here uh, that they're, that's being attributed as to being ancient or from another language, that there's some explanations there. It seems like what the apologist wants to do is to explain or express that Joseph Smith wasn't smart enough to dictate this stuff. And that when people point out the intertextuality with the King James Version or with the late war, first book of Napoleon, or view of the Hebrews uh, with theme stories or even actual directly lifted uh, partial phrases or even full verses, um, it seems like the apologist wants to suggest, well, that those don't work because they're not a direct plagiarism. And, and I, I don't think, uh, you know, that a critic, that the critics or the scholars are suggesting that Joseph directly plagiarized the late war or the view of Hebrews like word for word, but that Joseph was an eclectic aggregator of ideas and themes and so forth and referred to many different, uh, things and, and actually as somewhat of a genius in terms of his ability to dictate and narrate things. And put ideas together and develop stories. Um, you know, uh, I, I I think that uh, it's kind of a false equivalency to suggest that that he was not very smart and he had to have plagiarized it. And they're not direct copies, and so all those other similarities don't matter. Bill, you're going to have to break a tie here because you know, Anthony, you point at some of the other books: View of the Hebrews, uh, Late War. The, the, uh, with the Napoleon, what's the first Napoleon book of Napoleon? First book of Napoleon. Uh, you look at those as kind of Joseph grabbing, um, multiple different source materials, whether it's narrative materials like View of the Hebrews and sh- grammatically, sh- the grammatic structure of, of, um, the late war. I look at those books and more say, uh, the Book of Mormon isn't unique. It, it's, there's other books that maybe not necessarily Joseph pulled from those books, but there are other books written in his day that show a few things. A, that um, the origins of Native Americans was something that other people were interested in, uh, something that other people were talking about. And B, that the the style of of writing that we find in the Book of Mormon is not unique to the Book of Mormon. That was what was more striking to me. So the tiebreaker question to Bill, and maybe it's not as cut black and white, is do you, how does this, uh, the other books hit you, Bill? Are they more of like a source material that Joseph could refer to or pull ideas from? Or is it more just, this makes the Book of Mormon not as special? So I think it's not fair to look at Joseph Smith and assume that he wasn't well read. Again, we get this comment from uh, Lucy Mack where she says, you know, he wasn't prone to to reading a ton of books. He was more of a thinker. And and I'm simply looking at Joseph Smith's later life and I'm watching him voraciously try to learn languages, voraciously try to bring in instructors to learn new things. Now, I want to add on top of that, when we look on at Joseph Smith's other translation productions, uh, the book of Moses, which borrows heavily, can be this is this is demonstrable, borrows heavily from the New Testament in how it puts sentence structures together. Uh, when we look at the inspired translation of the Bible, and we now know BYU itself is acknowledging uh, Thomas Wayment, professor there, 
that Joseph Smith is borrowing heavily from Adam Clark's commentary, a contemporary source to Joseph Smith, in putting together his inspired translation of the Bible. So as Anthony says that he's an eclectic aggregator, um, I think that's demonstrable because if you just set the Book of Mormon aside and you look at all the other work of Joseph Smith, it becomes clear that he is using other source material and that source material on some level, even if it's only like, hey, I read that book and those themes are useful and I'm going to use those themes in this work. There's no doubt that Joseph Smith is doing that. Now, to what you're saying, Alan, which is this idea that, you know, he's reading these things. It's in the culture. I think it's that, too. Like he is writing a book that has the themes of a lot of other books that are in his milieu. And so I, th I think both things are going on. One is that it's just the natural style of his day and it's all around him. And the second is that he's read enough that we can see that he is pulling themes, or at least this would be the critical view, that he's pulling themes from other sources. Not that he's sitting down in that room with Martin Harris or Oliver Cowdery or Whitmer and going like, hey, let me read from this other book. No, it's that he's read these things, he's thought about these things, they're in his culture, and these things find their way into the Book of Mormon. Awesome. So you vote for both of us. Both and. I love it. It's a tie. We're yeah. all happy. I, I would point out something uh, before we move on is um, uh, John Hamer, uh, I believe it's John Hamer, it could have been Dan Vogel, um, made some interesting comments that the the book of Lehi might have been more secular. You know, it was the large right. plates narrative. And it really wasn't until uh, with King Benjamin and, and in Mosiah uh, where they pick up after the 116 pages where the Book of Mormon starts to get a much more religious tone. And then in the priority or the order of translation, it was the small plates of Nephi uh, in, in the story that were the last things mm. that were translated. And so um, in our Book of Mormon, uh, we have the small plates of Nephi on the front end. But the truth of the matter is, is those weren't translated until the back end. And so there was all this time to develop all this story. And then uh, at the end, Joseph could then narrate a, a big grand revelation to Nephi to fulfill the, uh, as a prophecy of fulfillment of the things that he had uh, dictated prior to that. Gotcha. Right? Like yeah. a self-fulfillment of prophecy. Kind of gotcha. Yeah. All right. Anthony, can you read the next paragraph? Unlike most dictated. Yes. Unlike most dictated drafts, the original manuscript was considered by Joseph Smith to be, in substance, the final product. To assist in the publication of the book, Oliver Cowdery made a handwritten copy of the original manuscript. This copy is known today as the printer's manuscript. Because Joseph Smith did not call for punctuation, such as periods, commas, or question marks, as he dictated, such marks are not in the original manuscript. The typesetter later inserted punctuation marks when he prepared the text for the printer. With the exceptions of punctuation, formatting, other elements of typesetting, and minor adjustments required to correct copying and scribal errors, the dictation copy became the text of the first printed edition of the Book of Mormon. Thoughts on this paragraph? I know none of us have uh, any notes, but anything jump out as we're as we're reading that? Just a little one, which is this idea that you know it was considered by Joseph Smith to be in substance a final product, 
and yet Joseph makes corrections to the book in in later uh, publishings that uh, that happened during his lifetime. Um, I just don't think it was considered to be any more a final product than any other dictated manuscript. It uh, that just seems like an out of place sentence. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we know First Nephi 11 had some significant edits to it, like we've mentioned in our previous ep- previous episodes. Yeah, and then there's a there's a the Messiah and Benjamin uh, snafu where the Benjamin, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. where Benjamin is. Uh, I, I may not be the best person to to outline this, but Benjamin is is used after he died. He died. Yeah, and it's later changed to Messiah. Right. So there's little things like that that are more than just punctuation and more than than just fixing the grammar. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, there's other inconsistencies uh, that he didn't fix, you know, that gives us an idea of this order. For example, um, in uh, the small plates of Nephi, we have Nephi having this grand revelation about what's what, what's going to happen. And then in Alma, we have Alma talking to uh, his sons about the coming of Jesus Christ and so forth and not knowing some of the things that he should have known if he had the small plates of Nephi. So there's some things like that in the story that don't get corrected. Right. <laughs> All right. We are to, uh, I think, what is the, the, the key part of this essay? Translation instruments. It was just the plates, right? Uh, no. A little pl- more complicated than that? The plates weren't actually used at all. All right. Bill, can you read that first paragraph for us? Translation instruments. Many accounts in the Bible show that God transmitted revelations to his prophets in a variety of ways. Elijah learned that God spoke not to him through the wind or fire or earthquake, but through a still small voice. Paul and other early apostles sometimes communicated with angels and on occasion with the Lord Jesus Christ. At other times, revelation came in the form of dreams or visions, such as a revelation to Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, or through sacred object, objects like the Urim and Thummim. This, uh, this paragraph feels like it's setting us up for something. Bill, what do you think? It, it looks like they're trying to say, look, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ talk to prophets in a multitude of ways. Let me lay out some of the ways, and some of these ways will be readily accepted by you. And let me kind of lay those out first. And then let me throw on you this idea that there's also these objects that are used to get revelation as well. It feels like they're trying to normalize what we are about to learn because I think it is shocking to the average Orthodox member of the church to find out like, oh, this gets really complex and there are seer stones and these stones were used for treasure digging, which we'll get into in a moment. Um, I think they're just beginning to kind of set it up and say, look, lots of ways uh, come to the prophets in terms of how they receive revelation and uh, Urim and Thummim or seer stones as we're about to get into is just one of those. Thanks. Yeah, this Urim, Urim, excuse me, Urim and Thummim. It's a difficult thing to say. A little bit of a tongue twister. This is our first introduction to that in the essay. Uh, Anthony, can you talk to us a little bit about what the Urim and Thummim is? All right. So the first time uh, in the restoration that the term Urim and Thummim gets used uh, is by William W. Phelps in 1833. So, and... um, it was years after the publication of the Book of Mormon, and uh, the name, uh, when it started to get used, uh, got retroactively uh, used to refer to any of Joseph Smith's various different seer stones 
as well as to refer to the interpreters. Um, the, the term Urim and Thummim was not used uh, by Joseph uh, during the time of the translation. It was just kind of a late attribution that got revisionistly applied. And then throughout our history, then what ended up happening is we tended to attribute Urim and Thummim to mean the, Neph the, the Nephite spectacles. Um, I, I would mention, I share, I'll share from, uh, that I gathered from uh, a website that quotes a book about Urim and Thummim. The Urim and Thummim in the Bible were not spectacles. They appear to be more like a pair of dice that produced a binary yes or no answer. In Samuel, we read how a request was made to the sacred stones. Quote, if the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim, but if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim, unquote. This is in Samuel 14, 41. Heads, Urim, tails, Thummim. Old Testament scholar Cornelius Van Dam describes it in this way. In, or, quote, in order to receive the revelation, the high priest took the diamonds or the diamond dice engraved with names, for example, Urim and Thummim, and cast them on a table or preferably the ark, uh, from the way they were arranged after being cast, the high priest could deduce the answer according to the traditional rules known to the high priest, unquote. This is from a book called The Urim and Thummim, A Means of Revelation in Ancient Israel. Now, I would uh, mention that there are some references in, in folklore magic to a glowing Urim and Thummim instead of like a yes or no dice kind of thing. But those references, uh, to my knowledge, are a very late development, probably in Western Europe uh, during times of development of folklore magic, and they're not something that would have been believed in biblical times. So, so I, I think that most members, at least I didn't understand what Urim and Thummim meant in the Bible, that it was more of a binary yes or no thing, uh, that they weren't spectacles that you would look through. And that the term was not used in the restoration in the church until late, until 1833, and then retroactively applied as a class of device uh, to the Nephite spectacles, as well as to Joseph's several seer stones. Looks like a blending of, of biblical and, and contemporary use of, of that phrase for Joseph. Eclectic aggregator. Mm, dang it, I'm going to vote for your side now. Uh, uh, Bill, any thoughts on, on the Yerman Thummel before we move on? Uh, at some point here, and it feels like we're, we, we're going to put it where it belongs, but it's going to come late. I, I would only say that the, if the unorthodox listener is listening, if, if somebody's listening going, look, all I know is the correlated story the church has told me, we're probably already, again, talking over their heads because you have to go back and you have to study Joseph Smith's early life, and you have to understand treasure digging and what seer stones are. Uh, and again, we're going to get into that. And so again, I'm, I'm almost unveiling something we haven't even talked about yet. And yet the listener needs to go back and study Joseph Smith's treasure digging, understand what seer stones are, understand the language of the Book of Mormon is sometimes used, as well as the DNC, around this language of seer stones and treasure digging. Uh, and when you understand the early history of Joseph Smith and his family, you can then come into this essay and begin to sense like why they're saying what they say and why they're avoiding saying what they're avoiding saying. Um, and I think that's just an important note here to the listener. If you feel like, wait a minute, 
this conversations over my head, go to the, the website where this episode is sitting and look at the resources. Uh, that'll be mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Uh, and, and also, Anthony, you've been posting these on your site as well, right? Yep. And what is yes, that name of that? Unpackingambiguity.com. And so if you go to either one of those and look at what is being said there, there are resources to go understand the early history so that this stuff makes more sense. I guess that's all I would insert there. Great. Well, I've got to come up with a website now. You guys have got one. Gosh. There you go. Uh, just <laughs> you, not a baseball website, though. No, 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 no. That's not on topic. All right. I'll read the next uh, two paragraphs because they kind of go together. Joseph Smith stands out among God's prophets because he was called to render into his own language an entire volume of scripture amounting to more than 500 printed pages containing doctrine that would deepen and expand the theological understanding of millions of people. For this monumental task, God prepared additional practical help in the form of physical instruments. I'm breaking my own rule. I said I was going to read another paragraph, but yeah, I'm not. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've already kind of addressed the the sentence of containing doctrine that would deepen and expand the theological understanding of millions of people. Read through the Book of Mormon. Um, what doctrines in it, if you read the Book of Mormon and then you compare it to the church of today, what doctrines are similar? What doctrines are different? Does the Book of Mormon actually um, paint the picture of, of where the church is and, and what the church teaches? It's not all in there. Uh, okay. Just wanted to make that quick note. Uh, uh, the, full, the fullness of, of the... So so I would go back to... I think there's some beautiful things in the Book of Mormon. Sure. I, I, the, you know, the, the sermon at the temple in the comparison to the Sermon on the Mount. All the intertextuality with the New Testament where where things from Matthew, Mark, Luke, the epistles of Paul end up uh, in the words of the mouths of people like Alma and so forth, uh, anachronistically, but very beautifully. Um, you know, there there's some beautiful stuff in there. You, right. should, you should read it again. Should I? I will. Yeah. I promise. Yeah. All right, moving on. Joseph Smith and his scribes wrote of two instruments used in translating the Book of Mormon. According to witnesses of the translation, when Joseph looked into the instruments... The words of scripture appeared in English. One instrument, called in the Book of Mormon the Interpreters, is better known to Latter-day Saints today as the Urimum Thummim. Joseph found the interpreters buried in the hill with the plates. Those who saw the interpreters described them as a clear pair of stones bound together with a metal rim. The Book of Mormon referred to this instrument together with its breastplate as a device, quote, kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord, and handed down from generation to generation for the purposes of interpreting languages, end quote. I think we've already talked about Yermithamim, so I'll read even the next paragraph because it introduces another idea for us. The other instrument which Joseph Smith discovered in the ground years before he retrieved the gold plates was a small oval stone or, quote, seer stoned, end quote. As a young man during the 1820s, Joseph Smith, like others in his day, used a seer stone to look for lost objects and buried treasure. As Joseph grew to understand his prophetic calling, he learned that he could use this stone for the higher purpose of translating scripture. Now we're introduced to the seer stone. Uh, Bill, um, why don't we throw it over to you and uh, let's discuss this uh, treasure digging. So let's start off with this idea that if you're the orthodox listener right now, you... You grew up in a world where 
the only story you had was that Joseph Smith found these spectacles, these Nephite interpreters, with the plates in the box. And Joseph used those as he looks at the Book of Mormon plates, the, the metal plates, and sits in a room with those with this breastplate and this Urim and Thumb on these spectacles and translates the, the Book of Mormon that way. And now suddenly the church is coming in and saying, but wait a minute, the story is a little different than that. It's a little, there's more to it. And so we have to go back to essentially 1819, a year before the first vision, by the way. And I think that's important to note. So Joseph is 13 years old. And the story we have is that Sally Chase, who comes into the story later, she's the the uh, scryer. And you may have to look that word up, but she's the scryer who's trying to get the plates from Joseph Smith after he has them. Now, this is long before that, 1819. She has a green seer stone and she claims to be able to find lost items and, and to look into it and to see things. Joseph uh, asks her if he can use that stone. She lets him. He looks into her green seer stone as a 13-year-old and he is told through the stone, that there is a, a seer stone for him 150 miles away, buried under a tree. So Joseph leaves. He alleges that that's what happens. So he leaves and he comes back. Uh, we don't know anything about this trip, but I'm trying to imagine a 13-year-old kid walking 150 miles, how long that would take. So it sounds like maybe he was gone for a couple of days, right? At least that is a minimum. Um, and I don't even know how long it takes to walk 150 miles, but that, that story on its own almost seems absurd. Joseph disappears. He comes back and he now has a white, uh, translucent stone that he claims is also a seer stone. And he uses this stone to help people find lost items. This is a practice, as the essay points out, that is all around him. There are at least six or seven people in the Palmyra area that we have documentation that they also acted as uh, town scryers. A scryer is a person who can see things in an object that others cannot see. And uh, Joseph would then, if someone came to him and said like, hey, I've lost my cow. She got out of the, the fenced-in area. Can you help me find her? The claim is that Joseph would be able to look into this stone and then tell people where things were at. As his, uh, as his notoriety for doing this got out, people began to come to him to look for treasures. That was another practice going on, is that people thought that Spaniards and others had come to this uh, New York area and had buried Spanish bullion or, or that there were silver mines and so Joseph Smith would essentially head up what's called a treasure dig, where he would uh, claim people would pay him to say, hey, go find us a treasure. He would then claim to look in his stone, see where treasures are buried in the New York area. And him and a group of people with shovels and the person who was paying for this expedition would then go and go dig that spot. We have multiple sources that show that when Joseph Smith would show them the spot to dig, they would begin digging and he would say, you're getting close, you're getting close. And then just before they would get to it, he would say, oh, we, we must not have done the incantation right. We must not have drawn the magic circle, uh, you know, in, in right the right way or, or done the right spell with it. And now the treasure has sunk further into the earth. 
So there's this practice of treasure digging, which always seemed to involve guardian angels. It seemed to involve uh, gold treasures that were buried. And it seems to involve the use of a seer stone. And so when the critic encounters this narrative of treasure digging, they're uncomfortable because Moroni is a guardian angel. The gold plates are a gold treasure. Joseph is again using seer stones in this process uh, in terms of translating this record. And here we are, this treasure is buried, you know, and there's uh, it's being protected again by this angel. So there's these similarities that feel to the critic like a lot like Joseph Smith's treasure digging. Um, and when you understand that Joseph is using seer stones and doing treasure digging and that everyone in the area who seems to be doing this, there's no record of people actually finding any treasure anywhere. It doesn't exist. And that's including Joseph, right? Yeah, exactly. There is no Spanish bullion. There is no silver mine. That this was a hobby uh, of these people. Uh, and they thought like they thought they were doing something real, but nobody ever finds anything. And so to go from essentially taking people's money to look for objects that don't exist and then finding so many similarities coming into the Moroni gold plate story, it just causes a lot of critics to go, hold on. There's a, there, this isn't just a coincidence. There's something going on here. And this is another story that becomes difficult for the apologist to explain away. Really good uh, breakdown. Thank you for walking us through that. Uh, I think there's there's more to say on the seer stone, and we'll get there as as the um, mechanics of the translation unravel here and or unfold before us rather, uh, real briefly. Um, Anthony, you had a, a quick note here to talk about footnote number nineteen. Did you want to do that? Yeah. So so. Um... I'd, I'd first say that two paragraphs ago, it says it, the essay says that God prepared the instruments. So that means that God would have had to prepare the brown chocolate seer stone too, right? That would be used for fol folklore magic purposes before the translation. So I, I, I would point the implications of that out. I'd also say that I'm not quite sure why they in the essay didn't explain here that the origin of the brown stone uh, as, as, uh, as Bill explained uh, that it was uncovered while digging a well um, and that it was used for, fol for folklore magic before and after uh, the angel ap appeared to him. At this point, I would also recommend there's this book that I have in my hands that you can't see because we're not on video uh, called Joseph's Seer Stones. It's by Michael Hubbard McKay and Nicholas J. Frederick. It's published, it's co-published with the BYU Religious Studies Center uh, in cooperation with Deseret Books. So it should be a safe book for any active believing or nuanced believing member or a critic to read. And you can go to Deseret Book and pick up your own copy. It's a fantastic resource that has sites and so forth that explain Joseph's seer stones, not only the brown seer stone, but the white one, and there's a green one too. And uh, so in any event, it's a book that I would recommend. Now, um, with the essays, the footnotes are important. So let's go to footnote, footnote number nine, 19. Uh, that is uh, after uh, talking about uh, finding buried treasure and lost objects. Footnote 19 reads, According to Martin Harris, an angel commanded Joseph to stop these activities, meaning the treasure digging, which he did by 1826. And uh, that's from... 
Richard Bushman's Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism, uh, as well as a Richard uh, Lloyd Anderson BYU Studies uh, article as well. Uh, the footnote continues, Joseph did not hide this well-known early involvement in treasure-seeking. So that's news to me. Um, in 1838, he published responses to questions frequently asked of him, uh, quote, was not Joe Smith a money digger, unquote, one question read, quote, yes, unquote, Joseph Smith answered, quote, but it was never a very profitable job to him as he only got $14 a month for it, unquote. Now, I would point out that Palmyra was close to, you know, one of the Great Lakes, and if someone went and worked really hard labor all day, you know, at the docks and related to the lake, they might have made $14. Uh, so $14 uh, back in the 1820s, uh, you know, was probably as good or more as somebody would earn doing hard labor uh, as well. Uh, with inflation, $14, you can't even go eat lunch at Applebee's with it. Well, right. may, maybe. And it should be noted, too, Joseph in that quote seems to be downplaying the treasure digging. And I think throughout the early history, he's trying to distance himself from that practice um, in the words that he uses. And again, in this quote here, Dan Vogel's done an article, I think it's in Dialogue, where it talks about the treasure digs in Palmyra. And if I remember right, I think there were 17 uh, separate treasure digs that the Smith family or Joseph Smith directly were connected with. So it, it wasn't, and, a bit, and I should say this too, it wasn't just digging a well-sized hole. It wasn't like two guys in a shovel digging a, a six-foot hole down into the ground that's, you know, four foot in diameter or something like that. Uh, instead, it was finding hills and digging into them, and these were large uh, almost caverns that they would dig out of these hills. Some of these still exist today. You can actually find pictures on uh, the internet uh, that show people standing in these caverns. These were significant. I mean, I can imagine 10 guys digging and digging for days on end uh, to create this abscess uh, space into the side of this hill. Before we move to the next paragraph, I ask the simple question of, you know, if, if someone could use a stone to find a bunch of treasure, why are they going to make just $14 a month on that rather than find the treasure themselves? Wouldn't that be more valuable? Uh, if there yeah. were treasure. Yeah, if, if there, there were, were treasure. treasure. So, I mean, yeah. that to me, it just, it's kind of that logical question of, well, of course, well, there's nothing to that ability. That would be like saying, you know, if crystal balls really worked, you could go to Venice Beach and find out what stock to pick. Uh, but if it really did work, the person using the crystal ball would be doing the stock picking. Well, exactly. Right. 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 No, if, exactly. If, the if the treasure digger really believed he was able to find buried treasure, why be the middleman and why not just run your own treasure digging expedition, a company of one? And it's fascinating that the treasure he did find, quote, did find, unquote, right. was some gold plates. That, yeah. That's what we're led to believe. He, did, he wasn't able to find anything until he found the, the mother of all treasures. Uh, but he didn't use the stone to find it. 
Maybe he did. It doesn't say he didn't. Oh, that's true. We have that anyway. Be, there's so many different ways you can yeah. look at this. Right, uh, Anthony, could you read the apparently for convenience? Yes, apparently. Continuing on in the essay, apparently for convenience, Joseph often translated with the single seer stone rather than the two stones bound together to form the interpreters. These two instruments, the the interpreters and the seer stone were apparently interchangeable and worked in much the same way in that in the course of time, Joseph and his associates often used the term Urim and Thummim. So this wasn't until 1833. Uh, Joseph and his associates often used the term Urim and Thummim to refer to the single stone as well as to the interpreters. In ancient times, Israelite priests used Urim and Thummim to assist in receiving divine communications. Although commentators differ on the nature of the instrument, several ancient sources state that the instrument involved stones that lit up or were divinely uh, illuminated. Uh, Latter-day Saints later understood the term Urim and Thummim to refer exclusively to the interpreters. Joseph Smith and others, however, seem to have understood the term as more of a descriptive category of instruments for obtaining divine revelations and less as the name of a specific instrument. My head's spinning a little bit. This is very confusing uh, of, of how do you make sense of all these, all this name stuff here? Bill, what do you, what do you think? Well, well, first, I don't think back when we were talking about treasure digging, I talked about where the brownstone came from. So let's just note it here. So Joseph got that first stone in 1819. In 1822, that's the year we're told. Again, there's documentation to this, that in 1822, Joseph Smith is digging a well. And I'm not really sure if he's digging a well for the Chases on their property or if him and Willard Chase, by the way, the brother of Sally Chase, the lady earlier with the Greenstone, and Willard and Sally, once Joseph has the plates, are very involved in trying to get those from him uh, through whatever means they can. That's the whole story of Joseph moving the plates from under the hearth to out in the barn and those kinds of things. That in 1822, they're digging a well, him and Willard Chase. They dig down. By the way, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't just go dig a hole to find water. You would find somebody who claimed to know how to find water or a water witcher. Uh, that would be the means by which, because you wouldn't just want to waste your time digging a hole where there was no water. And so, again, this folk magic and, and uh, water witching type thing comes into play. Joseph Smith digs the hole. He's uh, Willard Chase is down at the bottom at this point digging. They find a rock. He throws it up to Joseph. And Joseph says he can see in it. Um, throughout time, going forward, Willard Chase at various points claims that it was his stone and Joseph borrowed it and never returned it and refused to. So there's that maybe little kind of side note. But this brown egg-shaped stone is the very one which Joseph uses to translate the Book of Mormon. Now, to your question, there are tons of commentary from various witnesses to this whole experience that um, it gets convoluted. And here's what I mean. We have witnesses to the translation who were in the room, Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris. They are in, they, we like to say like there's their testimony in the beginning of the Book of Mormon and that's what they've said. The reality is they've said lots of things. David Whitmer, John Whitmer, uh, as secondhand sources, uh, 
uh, Orson Pratt and Parley Pratt uh, speak on these at various times. Oliver Cowdery, as one example, is all over the place. There are times where he talks about the seer stone being used for the translation. There are times where he is on the record saying that the Nephite interpreters were used for the translation. There are times he is on the record saying both are used for the translation. And there are times he is on the record being ambiguous that that there was just this translation method that involved interpreters, but we're not going to tell you whether it was the spectacles or the stones. And again, my point being, there are tons of witness statements multiple witness statements from the same individuals. And when you read all of it, it becomes, in a sense, kind of a convoluted mess of not knowing exactly where any one of these guys stands because they're on the record taking multiple views. Yeah, play with that. I'll foreshadow <laughs> here a little bit. In, in, a, in a few minutes, we're going to go ahead and insert a clip from a Mormon Stories interview with uh, LDS scholar Richard Bushman, who we've referred to in prior episodes, uh, that was from 2007, so 12 years ago, um, where then uh, active, uh, kind of nuanced, believing John DeLynn at the time was interviewing Richard Bushman uh, after uh, Rough Stone Rolling was written. And I'll just foreshadow that a little bit by just saying that in that clip, Richard Bushman expresses his opinion why and how Latter-day Saints uh, ended up understanding that the term Urim and Thummim referred only to the Nephite interpreters instead of uh, a late retroactive attribution to Joseph's several seer stones as well as the interpreters as a class of device. All right, last paragraph of this section says, Some people have balked at this claim of physical instruments used in the divine translation process, but such aids to facilitate the communication of God's power and inspiration are consistent with accounts in Scripture. In addition to the Urimum Thummim, the Bible mentions other physical instruments used to access God's power. The rod of Aaron, a brass serpent holy anointing oils, the Ark of the Covenant, and even dirt from the ground mixed with saliva to heal the eyes of a blind man. Okay. What do you think? All right. So here we need to go and unpack what was on my shelf, uh, and we need to have a talk about the Nephite interpreters. According to the McKay and Frederick book, uh, published co-published by BYU Religious Studies Center and Deseret Book, um, the Nephite interpreters would have come from the brother of Jared in about 2200 BC, discovered later and then used by King Mosiah to translate from the 24 gold Jaredite trait, uh, plates, and then retained with the plates by Mormon and later Moroni for the express purpose of translating uh, the plates by Joseph Smith. And here's the shelf item that I carried with regard to the interpreters. This was before reading the essay. So what we know from human and world history is that, is that the earth held a population of between 50 and 60 million people between 3000 BC and 2000 BC. And there were diverse languages and cultures and spiritual practices. So the story of a single Adamic language or a single language, if you know, apologists might say, well, it didn't have to be an Adamic language, but the story of a single language and a tower, which, you know, Bruce R. McConkie put uh, in, in our version, you know, in the, in the headline of uh, the Book of Ether, it was the Tower of Babel. And some apologists will say, well, it doesn't have to be the Tower of Babel, but there was a tower and there was a single language. 
and a story of confounding of languages. But it seems to be that what we know about world history and linguistics is that this is demonstrably an origin myth. There were, there were thousands and thousands of different languages and cultural practices. This idea that there was a single language and a confounding of languages seems to be clearly an origin myth that didn't exist in 2200 BC. Yet for the Book of Mormon to be literally what it represents itself to be, it seems that this origin myth needs to be literal and historical if we work back through things. Because first of all, the two-thirds sealed portion of the Book of Mormon is claimed to be a literal translation by Moroni of what a literal historical brother of Jared wrote that might be considered uh, having been written in the original Adamic language on 24 gold Jaredite plates. And Moroni is supposedly translating it from Adamic to Hebrew, but then writing it in Reformed Egyptian to constitute that two-thirds sealed portion. And this translation by Moroni was supposed to be using those same interpreter stones that King Mosiah used that originated with the brother of Jared with the Tower of Babel story. Uh, so here's the shelf issue, because if the story of a single Adamic language and a Tower of Babel is an origin myth, because of what we know about world history and linguistics, this means that the brother of Jared story was born out of an origin myth. And it also would mean that the interpreters, the Nephite interpreter stones, were also born out of an origin, origin myth, but used literally somehow by King Mosiah and Moroni and uh, supposedly by Joseph uh, to translate actual gold plates, all born out of this origin myth. And of course, that two-thirds uh, sealed portion, it would be like developing an entire narrative based upon some device that directly came from the origin myth of a flat earth and a firmament. So if you look up what the firmament meant in the Old Testament, it was a dome that covered the earth to separate the water that was in the sky from the water below. So that's where the flat earthers start to get their idea is because it was an origin myth that's in Genesis. So it'd be like if there was a device that was born out of the firmament origin myth uh, but we were reliant on that particular device being literally historical and not mythical, not an origin myth at the same time uh, to exist at 2200 BC and at 421 AD plus in the 1820s. And so the problem here is that the literalism completely crumbles for me on this because for the Nephite interpreters to be real, then the whole origin myth of the Tower of Babel needed to be real. And so reading the essay and recognizing that there was another device other than the interpreters that would have been used for the, quote, translation, unquote, meant that there was a reasonable explanation for what I had shelved as most surely a myth that the interpreters were most likely mythical and that they might not have actually been literally used for any of the actual translation by Mosiah, by Moroni, or by Joseph Smith. That's a thank you. I know that that was a, a lot of breaths to get through, but that, it, that is very important because so many of those historical uh, events have to be historical. All of those stories have to be historical for this specific item. Uh, if you think that what Anthony just went through 
uh, was off topic. It really, it was not. This historical Urim and Thummim, this, these spectacles, they, it had to be literal all the way back to that Tower of Babel. And as soon as one of those dominoes falls, all of it crumbles around it. Right. Yeah. Thanks for walking through that. And if you take it one step further, you guys, so there is this idea that, you know, we understand when we get to the DNA essay, we understand that there isn't this Jewish DNA heavily present. It's not, it's not there at all, really, in all of Native Americans. And so now the apologists, the defenders of the faith, come in and say, well, yeah, but the Nephites and Lamanites were this small group of people amongst a much broader uh, people in the land that are not them. And so then you have to take into account, like, if these prophets understood Hebrew and understood how to translate to Reformed Egyptian, the difficulty in passing both of those languages on when you are a subset culture amongst a much larger culture, and now you've added even one more incredible uh, thing that has to happen into a story when when science and social scientists would say like, ah, language scientists would say like, mm, that, uh, social scientists would say that you're pushing into something that probably feels really difficult to make occur to pass on multiple languages in a, in a subset culture within a larger culture uh, so that you can keep translating these things and doing this kind of work. Yeah, to those Orthodox believers, for those true, true believing uh, members of the church that are listening, I, I just want, my heart goes out to everybody listening to this. And I understand we're, we're likely talking to people that already agree with our voices. But I, I look at all this and it's like, what keeps you holding on and believing? So, it, so my, my uh, friends who know the messiness of this, uh, that are continue as nuanced believers, uh, they experience a sense of divinity in their experiences with the Book of Mormon. And so they might say, you know, who cares whether it was a divining rod or a scepter from Zeus or a brownstone or Nephite spectacles that came from a mythical origin story of Tower of Babel. I experienced divinity in my uh, uh, experience with the Book of Mormon and reading it. And so that makes it a divine scripture, even if it's not historical or if it is historical I experienced divinity. And so that's their reconciliation is it's based on those spiritual experiences. And that's how they, they reconcile it. And maybe they're skilled like I used to be of shelving those things, like the whole Tower of Babel thing uh -huh. or, or, or the uh, interpreters uh, coming from that. Um, but there, there are people that are able to look at this, sit on this, and, and nuance it in, in such a way that I haven't been able to. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, next paragraph. Let's do it. Uh, Bill, I'd like to hear you read. That'd be awesome. The Mechanics of Translation. In the preface to the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith wrote, quote, I would inform you that I translated the book by the gift and power of God, unquote. When pressed for specifics about the process of translation, Joseph repeated on several occasions that it had been done by, quote, by the gift and power of God, unquote, and once added, Quote, it was not intended to tell the world all the particulars of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, unquote. That's a 19th century version of no comment, right? It's, uh, this isn't, uh, the details aren't important. So I, I think it's interesting because Dan Vogel, uh, you know, his theory of how this came about, the, the pious 
fraud theory is, is that Dan Vogel would say that Joseph Smith believed that this came through the gift and power of God because it brought people to Christ, even though Dan Vogel doesn't think it's literal history. So maybe Joseph did, you know, maybe he, that's what he actually believed, according yeah. to Dan Vogel. Right. So I, I think at this point, uh, it would be helpful then uh, to insert clips, uh, like I mentioned, foreshadowed before, of an interview with LDS historian Richard Bushman, who is a patriarch. Uh, he's an editor for the Joseph Smith Papers Project. He was the author of Rough Stone Rolling that, that uh, was distributed at uh, Deseret Book. Um, he worked for the church for a number of years in the church history department with Leonard, Leonard Arrington and Michael Quinn uh, before the archives were closed for a period of time after President Kimball died and Arrington, Bushman, and Quinn were subsequently transferred to BYU. In these clips, uh, they're from an interview in 2007 uh, with then active nuance believing uh, John DeLynn for Mormon Stories. Bushman explains his belief that the evidence shows that the Nephite interpreters were not used for any of the translation at all, including the 116 pages, and that the interpreter stones were not used for any of the actual translation work at all, and that it was entirely the brown stone. And, and I think Bushman believes there were Nephite interpreter stones that maybe Joseph used and played with, but they weren't actually used for any of the translations. So we're going to go ahead and insert this clip now, and then you can listen to it. And then uh, there's actually two clips uh, of that interview. And then when you come back, then we can see what the essay says about the process. Ooh, ooh, roll the tape. So Martin begins helping out with the translation. Um, and what, what do we know about the mechanics of the actual translation? Not a lot. It's, um, there are all these various theories about what's going on. I think it's, what is quite evident is that Joseph Smith was not looking at the plates. We do have a number of descriptions of him. The plates sitting on the table wrapped in linen cloth, he looking at his seer stone, not the Urim and Thummim, but his seer stone, which is in a hat, which uh, he uses to darken the, the, the space right around the stone, which presumes that there was some light coming from the stone, so that you had to read something that was faint, and if there were other lights, it would um, obliterate the shape of the letters. So uh, we know that much, and there are these theories that that's, that the stone or the inspiration would plant ideas in Joseph's head, and then he would find the words. So it's very much his language, it's his story as he's inspired to dictate it. That's one theory. The other theory, which is the Royal Skousen theory now, is that the words of the translation actually appeared to Joseph Smith in the stone, and he just dictated them off. And they remained there until they were written down, and then they uh, disappeared, and new words came. And David Whitmer uh, describes the process somewhat this way. So, lacking um, a real explanation from Joseph Smith himself, I think we just have to uh, 
you know, leave it like that, that there are these two accounts. Uh, we don't know exactly which one is, is accurate. Now, I, I was under the understanding that when Martin Harris was involved, there wasn't a hat and that he used what we would traditionally understand as the Urim and Thummim, which is these crystals. Yeah. Well, there is some evidence of that. That is true. Uh, but there, I and I have said as much in things I've written, but people who have looked at that evidence, scrutinized it carefully, say you don't really have evidence that you had the Urim and Thummim, uh, because you, they use this word interpreters, which could refer to the seer stone as well. Later on, Joseph Smith did call the stone uh, a Urim and Thummim. So Urim and Thummim was a type of an instrument. It wasn't necessarily that specific instrument with the stone set in the breastplates. So we don't know if these crystals in the breastplate were ever used. There's no account of them ever being used. I don't think so, no. Okay, and um, and also, um, sorry, I'm just thinking. Uh, oh, well, th this begs a really interesting question, and I'm sure you get this a lot. And that is, why why ask the Book of Mormon prophets to spend all this time and energy creating gold plates, riding on them, handing them down through generations? Make Moroni walk all the way to Hill Cumorah from wherever he was to deposit them in the in the hill. Have Joseph Smith go through all this pain to hide them, and then when it gets to the time to actually create the book, he doesn't seem to use them. Yeah, that is a mystery, and it's a mystery that carries over to the Book of Abraham. Did he need those scrolls or not in order to translate? And I don't really have an answer with any authority behind it at all. It actually, I think, points towards the need for speculation about wh why, I mean, let's begin by accepting as a fact that the plates were necessary, that all that effort was uh, not s symbolic, that you had to be there with the words written on them. Why would that have to be? And I, I don't really know, except that it seems to indicate some relationship between the physical and the spiritual. That for words to come into this man's head, uh, you needed the presence of a physical object that was laden with the efforts and, and thought of uh, so many prophets preceding him. And... Um, I, you know, I reached for for analogies, and the one that comes to me is induction. I don't know if you know the process of induction by which if you move a magnet across a wire, with you don't have to touch it, but just pass it across the wire, it sends, makes the electrons in the wire move in a certain direction. And that's the way electricity is generated, by making wires cross magnets. And you know, there you have some force radiating from the physical object that has an effect on the electrical current. So, but, you know, that's just kind of a fairly lame analogy. But uh, when it comes right down to it, I, I don't have an answer to that question. So that's, the, 
you know, most people would be just stunned to know that there's no real evidence that the plates were used uh, materially in the translation and that the Urim and Thummim, meaning the crystals in the breastplate, weren't used either. That's real different from the accounts that we kind of grow up with in primary and Sunday school and seminary. Yeah. Well, that's the account that's in the historical records, though, so we just have to live so, with it. So we have to live with it. Do you think we need to change the art and the pictures and the graphics and the motion pictures that we are using to depict the process? Do you think it's disingenuous to continue having the curtain and using some type of spectacles and showing Joseph staring at the plates, thinking earnestly, and then, you know, dictating? Do you think that yeah. that's something we need to change, maybe? Yeah, I definitely think we need to change it. It's not because, um, you know, it's a horrible mistake because the guys who do those pictures are not trying to deceive anyone. That's what they think actually happened. It's, it's just a matter of accuracy. And the problem is if you're not accurate, then you, down the line, you put your own um, credibility in jeopardy. And I don't, I just want to think all of our young people should feel like they're really getting the straight story on Joseph Smith or they're going to go through the experience you've had. Disillusionment, anger. It's a very sad thing and it's unnecessary. So we, we do need to avoid that. So is it possible that somehow the mechanics were never really known? And so someone in the 1850s or 1860s and let's say 19th century correlation sort of just came up with this story, and even subsequent po apostles and prophets sort of understood that to be the way that the, the translation happened? In other words, when did we learn about the hat and the stone? Have we always known it, and we just never talked about it? How did this creep in, and how did it get allowed to, to creep in the way that it yeah. did? Well, um, that's actually an interesting historiographical question. I mean, the, the stories of the hat and the stone were recorded very close to Joseph Smith's lifetime by the people who were there, Oliver Cowdery and and uh, David Whitmer and Emma Smith. So it's not like um, the, that we've that we've sort of made up this new version of it. it it's been there. But I think what threw us off was our own embarrassment about Joseph Smith. We so wanted him to be kind of a 19th century Protestant view of a prophet, you know, a noble soul, um, sort of partly ethereal, who um, speaks only spiritual wisdom and not someone who's involved in magical practices, which is superstition and which Protestants are dead set against uh, in the 19th century. And that effort to kind of suppress anything that would scandalize Joseph Smith or turn him into a scandal, I think motivated the desire to make it all sort of lovely and, and commonsensical rather than anything that would be magical. So someone along the way maybe felt embarrassed or said, you know, people aren't going to buy this or people aren't going to believe it or people are going to think we're goofy. And so let's 
let's depict it, let's rewrite history and depict it in a way that's a little bit more palatable. Well, I'm not sure it's quite that calculated, but it has that effect that you just kind of uh, boulderize the story. You whitewash it, and um, it ends up this way. Okay, at this point, uh, I felt it was kind of strong that Richard Bushman would use the words boldlerize and whitewash uh, in this interview. Um, makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, part of it is I didn't know what boldlerize meant. It's, yeah, I've, I haven't heard that either. It is a fantastic word. It means uh, to remove material that is considered improper or offensive from a text or account, especially the result that the text becomes weaker or less effective. So it's basically whitewashing, but it's a fancy word. So there's your learn for the day. Use the word boldlerize. I like it. I like it a lot. All right. Should we move on to the next paragraph? Yeah. So let's see what the essay says about the process. So we've got nevertheless is where we're at, correct? Yes. Nevertheless, the scribes and others who observed the translation left numerous accounts that give insight into the process. Some accounts indicate that Joseph studied the characters on the plates. Most of the accounts speak of Joseph's use of the Urim and Thummim, either the interpreters or the seer stone, and many accounts refer to his use of a single stone. According to these accounts, Joseph placed either the interpreters or the seer stone in a hat, pressed his face into the hat to block out extraneous light, and read aloud the English words that appeared on the instrument. The process, as described, brings to mind a passage from the Book of Mormon that speaks of God preparing, quote, a stone which shall shine forth in darkness unto light, end quote. That's a big jump. Um, if I could explain, uh, I'll, I'll tell a, a brief story that uh, of an experience I had really two years ago when I first learned of the seer stone, which was actually from this essay, uh, I had a family member of mine who this was a the largest shelf item for them. Basically, this single paragraph was the largest shelf item that ended up um, really being difficult to reconcile um, all of these uh, new and all of this new information from the essays. And he walked me through that logical process of hold on a second. So these these prophets from the from the Book of Mormon. They lugged around these plates. They did the very laborious and tedious work of inscribing their story on metal plates. And Moroni carried them thousands of miles to upstate New York, buried them in a hill. Uh, the physical importance of scripture and plates were so important that Nephi committed murder by killing Laban. And... All of that protected by an angel over the course of 1400 years. Joseph was prepared time and time again. He went to the hill four consecutive years because he wasn't ready to receive this important physical object. He gets the object. He's, people are trying to take this, these plates from him. And when it comes time for him to translate, he doesn't use the plates. He uses a stone in the hat and the plates at times weren't even in not just the room, but in the home itself. The plates weren't even there. Why in the world are these physical plates needed in the first place? 
why all of the effort to protect them, to write them, to kill a guy over the importance of physical plates. I understand that the, the gold plates are not what uh, Nephi and his, his uh, brothers were recovering from Laban. But that is a good example of how important these physical plates are. And then they're not used. That was a huge shelf item for my brother, shelf collapsing item for my brother. Uh, I've, I've betrayed who he is in this story now. Uh, but then it, it was for me as well. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't have God prepared uh, a seer stone for Nephi. Uh, so he didn't have to kill Laban for the brass plates. And Nephi could have just like generated the brass plates with his own stone. Yeah. Oh, the, the Laban, uh, hopefully, you know, listeners, you can, you can hear the sincerity and the difficulty in our voices as we tell these types of stories. This is really the most personal I'll get here. I raised, I raised my hand in, in Sunday school about the Laban story and said, you know, maybe he shouldn't have killed him. Maybe you bring up a good point, Anthony. Why, why couldn't God have prepared a seer stone for, for Nephi instead of murdering this man? In this, but in the Book of Mormon, it gives the answer, right? It says it's better for one man to, to perish than a whole nation to dwindle in unbelief. Well, guess what? That entire nation did dwindle in unbelief. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they ended and, up dwindling. Anyway, we're getting the, off topic a bit. It's beyond the scope of the discussion today, but for people that want to dig into it um, and study Old Testament uh, history, what they'll find is that... Um, the five books attributed to Moses weren't fully developed until after the Babylonian captivity. And so they, there was no such thing as a compiled book, biblical book in 600 BC before the Babylonian captivity that include, included the five books attributed to Moses. So that Joseph didn't know that, uh, you know, when he translated the Book of Mormon. But for those that want to go off that uh, deep end uh, of biblical study, they'll find out that the brass plates uh, story is very very challenging because they wouldn't not have existed until after the Babylonian captivity. At least the stories wouldn't have. Well, at least then Laban didn't get, get his head cut off then. So that's, you know, there's, right. yeah. that's good. Yeah. Bill, go ahead. Let's throw another wrench in. So Brigham Young taught that Moroni also blessed the Manti temple site. So you not only have Moroni making his way from wherever the Book of Mormon took place and going to Palmyra, and again, a large chunk of apologists, when they understand the information, an apologist is somebody who's defending the faith. And so as the apologists encounter all of the data, they try to come up with reconciliations to that. The reconciliation most apologists have, you you did a hat tip to the Heartland theory earlier, most apologists hold that the Book of Mormon took place in Central South America, which means Moroni would have traveled from there all the way to Palmyra to bury the plates. And again, you pointed out earlier, which hill Cumorah, the, the hill in New York doesn't have the millions and millions of skeletons that need to be there for the final battles among the Jaredites as well as the Nephites and Lamanites. So when you take into account that there, that that hill seems to not be the hill, apologists move the hill to South Central America. Now you add in the Brigham Young quote and you say like Moroni has to go all the way out to Manti bless that temple site, do whatever else he's got to do on his way out there, which by the way, that seems simple. But if you understand what's involved in that kind of a trek as a single human being, you are essentially in the realm of impossible. Now he has to make his way back from Manti to Palmyra, bury the plates. Um, you're dealing with the weight of the plates. You're dealing with other issues. This all becomes 
borderline absurd. And, and as you point out, the sincerity of this, I don't mean that offensively. It's once you understand the stories of the Book of Mormon, and, and now I'm going off on a tangent, being stabbed in the heart and dying instantly rather than screaming bloody murder because of what's involved in being stabbed in the heart. When you talk about 2,000 stripling warriors going into battle, when you talk about the Tower of Babel, which you mentioned earlier, Anthony, when you talk about Jaredite barges and Nephite ships, the stories become absurd. And now you have Moroni traveling this huge distance that is impossible in reality. And let's just say he did it. He does the impossible. And now Joseph doesn't even use the very plates that Moroni carries on this journey as if they're supposed to be absolutely crucial and important. Yeah, and the narrative is not only that he was carrying the 40, 50 pound or however many pound plates that Joseph had. The narrative is that he was also carrying the sword of Laban, you know, the Nephite spectacles, the breastplate and the Liahona. At the Liahona, he was and being pursued. He was being pursued, and he was carrying all of the large plates. You know, so we have these depictions. You know, the artists they are interpreting the narratives that have been given to the artists of of Mormon or Moroni in a cave that has all these plates all over the place, right? So the narrative is. I, I know that's just an artist depiction, but it's based on the narrative. The narrative is is that. The large plates cover, were expansive and that Mormon did a, a, a compilation of those things. Okay. And he would have been carrying uh, all of these things uh, or Moroni would have been carrying all these things too. I, I, I asked people in my Mormon spectrum group, you know, I wanted to know their experiences uh, with this essay. And I explained that my shelf item was the Tower of Babel and the Nephite uh, interpreters thing. And uh, a, a common feedback that I got uh, from people in my Mormon spectrum group was that you're not alone or your brother's not alone is the recognition that the plates weren't actually uh, specifically used or referred to for the translation. That was the thing that crashed their shelf. Yeah. 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 All right. We're uh, going to try to do the rest of this in, in the next 20 minutes. So uh, if you're listening at two times speed, Forgive the pace that I read this paragraph at here. Go for it. The scribes who assisted with the translation unquestionably believe that Joseph Smith translated by divine power. Joseph's wife, Emma, explained that she frequently, quote, frequently wrote day after day, end quote, at a small table in their house in Harmony, Pennsylvania. She described Joseph, quote, sitting with his face buried in his hat with the stone in it and dictating hour after hour with nothing between us, end quote. According to Emma, the plates, quote, often lie uh, on the table without any attempt at concealment wrapped in a small linen tablecloth, end quote. That sounds like concealment to me, but anyway, yeah. uh, moving on. When asked if Joseph had dictated from the Bible or from a manuscript he had prepared earlier, Emma flatly denied those possibilities. Quote, he had neither manuscript nor book to read from, end quote. Emma told her son, Joseph Smith III, Quote, the Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. I am satisfied that no man could have dictated the writing of the manuscripts unless he was inspired. For when acting as a scribe, your father would dictate to me for hour after hour, and when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off, without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him, end quote. So I jump in here and indicate that this is also from that very, very late 
uh, uh, last testimony of Sister Emma from 1879. Um, and remember that we need to take some of these things with a grain of salt because this is where Emma denies polygamy. And this is where she was saying that Joseph didn't have a manuscript or a book to read from. But um, we'll include in the links to the show, there are LDS scholars that acknowledge that Joseph Smith clearly would have taken breaks to refer uh, to, to at least the King James Version of the Bible uh, to, to, to lift things like the Isaiah verses and things like that. So, Yeah, I'm actually, uh, Bill, why don't you give a few thoughts here, uh, if you could. I'm, I'm looking up um, an Ensign article that talks about exactly what you just said. Uh, two things. One is, as Emma shares this quote, let's even take her at her face, you know, at, at face value. The other thing that's going on here is that when Emma's working on the translation, when she is acting as scribe, we know the translation process went much slower, uh, more, more tedious. Um, and so we point out this earlier point about, you know, Oliver Cowdery and Joseph doing this in 90 days. The portions that Emma would have worked on would have been a much slower process. And so her observation of the translation process on some level is different than, than the majority of the Book of Mormon under Oliver Cowdery. Maybe just a small point. The other one is this idea, this quote, sentence, I have not the slightest doubt of it. I'm satisfied that no man could have dictated the writing of the manuscripts unless he was inspired. That's one person's view. There are hundreds of critics who have expertise in various areas who say not only could Joseph Smith have borrowed uh, material from other sources, that it didn't have to be an inspired translation, but the actual evidence shows that there are things that Joseph is borrowing from his uh, culture, from the sermons of ministers in his area, borrowing from his father's experiences. You mentioned the dream earlier, uh, borrowing from his own personal stories with his own brothers and sisters in their family. Um, the, the language that is being used is very, very strongly found in the late war in the first book of Napoleon. Um, the thematic structures in the view of the Hebrews, like not only does it not have to be, um, let me say it different. Not only can it not be inspired, but we actually have evidence, not proof, of course, but evidence that Joseph is doing the very thing that Emma is saying he couldn't have done. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> I'm okay with uh, even trusting Emma's Emma's uh, quote here, um, understanding, like you said, Anthony, that there there are instances of her denying uh, polygamy where we we now know that that she absolutely knew about Joseph's polygamy. But even if we believe and trust her quote here, um, does not she wasn't there for the entire process, uh, and also we know now. Um, for example, this is, I found the, the Ensign article, September, 1977 in the Ensign. Uh, I won't read the entire thing. It talks about the, the Isaiah chapters and towards the end of the quote, uh, you can look up the entire article, but towards the end of the quote, it says, quote, that is, uh, that is simply that Joseph Smith must have opened Isaiah and tested each mentioned verse by the spirit. If his translation was essentially the same as that of the King James Version, he apparently quoted the verse from the Bible, end quote. So you have the church magazine, the Ensign, uh, admitting or saying Joseph copied straight from the Bible. Yeah, we'll include a link in the show notes. Um, 
That article was written by BYU professor Richard Lloyd Anderson, and the title of it was By the Gift and Power of God. Great. Uh, Bill, you want to read the next paragraph? Another scribe? Another scribe, Martin Harris, sat across the table from Joseph Smith and wrote down the words Joseph dictated. Harris later related that Joseph used the seer stone to translate sentences. So sorry. Harris later related that Joseph used the seer stone to translate. Sentences appeared. Joseph read those sentences aloud. And after penning the words, Harris would say written. An associate who interviewed Harris recorded him saying that Joseph possessed a seer stone by which he was enabled to translate as well as from the Urim and Thummim. And for convenience, he used the seer stone. I think this is a good opportunity, Bill, for you to explain uh, what the difference between a tight translation and a loose translation are and, and how both of those arguments are made at the same time. Uh, let me say, too, I'm going to have to jump out here probably in 14, 13 minutes. Um, I'll share this last part, and then I pretty much have shared, I think, everything I want to anyway. Um, okay, so a couple things here. One is that we, we played the Bushman audio earlier where he's talking about the translation. Uh, it should be noted one of the reasons we feel, feel very confident that the uh, Urim and Thummim, the Nephite spectacles, the, the Nephite interpreters – were not used for the Book of Mormon we have. In other words, the 531 pages of published material that we use at church on Sunday is because, um, one, that uh, Martin Harris on multiple occasions refers to Joseph using the seer stone. We have the story where Joseph uh, and Martin step away from the translation, go out to the, the stream to throw rocks. Martin Harris finds a rock that looks extremely similar to Joseph's uh, egg-shaped stone. He takes it back to the house, puts it in the hat, takes Joseph's stone out, and then waits for Joseph to see if he translates or not. And Joseph says something like, Martin, what is wrong? Everything is as dark as Egypt. We also have the story that Moroni takes the uh, spectacles or Nephite interpreters away when the 116 pages are lost. And yes, there is some confusing testimony uh, in regards to uh, the witnesses and what, what was used and what wasn't. But I think those occur in a, in a, not in a vacuum. They occur in a instance of Joseph and those people trying to make the story sound as biblical and as spiritually uplifting as possible and trying to keep treasure digging completely out of it. So to simply say it is very possible that the entire Book of Mormon was translated, dictated with Joseph using his brown shaped, uh, brown egg shaped stone in the bottom of a white top hat rather than even using the spectacles which were preserved just as we said Nephi is wasting his time carrying plates we also have uh, the fact that this instrument was preserved for this reason and then not used the second point which you asked about Alan is this idea of tight translation loose translation when you understand the problems by what is in the Book of Mormon and what we have to believe about the translation process when we take the 20,000-foot view and look at all of the data, we need the Book of Mormon in certain places to be a tight translation, meaning that the uh, stone is giving Joseph the exact words to say to the scribe to write down. In other places, we need the translation to be a loose translation because we need room for Joseph to be implementing his own things, using his own words. 
We need places where Joseph is using the exact label that the word should be. For instance, Nahum, uh, the apologists love to point to a spot over in Israel, uh, in, in that area, that points to a same location that's going on inside the Book of Mormon text. So we need places where Joseph knows the exact word to use. And then we need other places where Joseph sees an animal. It, it, you know, it, it isn't a horse. He knows what a horse is. It's not a horse, but he doesn't know any other word to use because the stone's not telling him. So now he even mislabels things as something else. Um, and so for the Book of Mormon to hold up as a historical item, you need this translation process being fluid and changing from one thing to the next, from sentence to sentence. And that too becomes a little, a little hard to take in if you're for a lot of members of the church today. Yeah, I mean, the Book of Mormon has all this expansive monetary system with coins, right? And we can go to dig sites uh, in the old world that weren't very heavily populated and find coins, right? And actually what was used in Mesoamerica uh, were beans, chocolate beans, you know, things like that. And we haven't found any coins. And so, you know, it's messy because if it's a tight translation, then the coin is a problem. And if it's a loose translation, then, uh, well, Nahum is a problem. Right. There's problems each way you look at it. Okay, reading a last paragraph before we get to the conclusion. The principal scribe Oliver Cowdery testified under oath in 1831 that Joseph Smith, quote, found with the plates from which he translated his book two transparent stones resembling glass set in silver bows that by looking through these, he was able to read in English the reformed Egyptian characters which were engraved on, which were engraven on the plates, end quote. In the fall of 1830, Cowdery visited Union Village, Ohio, and spoke about the translation of the Book of Mormon. Soon thereafter, a village resident reported that the, trans that the translation was accomplished by means of, quote, two transparent stones in the form of spectacles through which the translator looked on the engraving, end quote. And we just listened to those clips from scholar Richard Bushman indicating that he thinks that that's not actually accurate or believable uh, because it conflicts with all the other testimony. Right. Uh, Bill, before you have to run off and save the world one sale at a time, uh, can you read the conclusion for us? Conclusion. Joseph Smith consistently testified that he translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. His scribes shared that testimony. The angel who brought news of an ancient record of metal plates buried in a hillside and the divine instruments prepared especially for Joseph Smith to translate were all part of what Joseph Smith and his scribes viewed as the miracle of translation. When he sat down in 1832 to write his own history for the first time, he began by promising to include an account of his marvelous experience. The translation of the Book of Mormon was truly marvelous. Um, the truth of the Book of Mormon and its divine source cannot... Sorry, let me start over. The truth of the Book of Mormon and its divine source can be known today. God invites each of us to read the book, remember the mercies of the Lord, ponder them in our hearts, and ask God the Eternal Father in the name of Christ if these things are not true. God promises that if ye shall ask with a sincere heart and real intent, having faith in Christ, 
He will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Thanks, Bill. Um, you know, that, that last section there, I think it's extremely important. We've mentioned it previously in, in this episode that you need to ponder it in your hearts and your minds. Uh, can you still feel, can I, this is the question I had to ask myself just a couple of years ago, knowing all of this new information in this essay, particularly if we're hyper-focused on a testimony of the Book of Mormon, knowing this new information, can I still get on my knees and reconcile through the spirit, through my own logic, which God has blessed me with, that these things are true? Um, I couldn't. I tried. I tried hard and it, I could not do it. I took the challenge. But one of the answers is or can be, um, this is not what it claims to be. This new information certainly does impact what happens when you hit your knees and, and, and pray about it. Yeah, and that, I, I think that's accurate. I, one of my friends who's a very nuanced believer, he's kind of reconstructed what the meaning of the worth, word true means for him. And so he, in, instead of being true, meaning that it's accurate or what it represents itself to be, to him, when he uses the word true, it has to do with the kind of utility uh, or usefulness that information has. So in his mind, the Book of Mormon is non-historical. It's a 19th century creation. Joseph Smith, you know, was using this uh, seer stone as some sort of mystical device to be inspired by God. But he feels closer to Jesus and God because of the Book of Mormon, even though he reconciles that it's messy and non-historical. And part of it is because he's reattributed a new meaning to the, what, what the word true means for him. Right. Uh, Bill, any final thoughts on this essay? The last word goes to you. Yeah, just this idea of praying about things and feeling a confirmation. Anthony, just in your story there, let me put it this way. Uh, uh, there are, uh, we're at like 12 to 13 million members of the church that puts us somewhere around maybe the three to five million active members of the church, uh, somewhere in that number. Of those active members, there is a wide range of belief. So your friend has had a spiritual confirmation that the Book of Mormon is true in a certain way. That way conflicts deeply with other members of the church who have prayed about the Book of Mormon and know it is a historical book. There was a real Nephi, a real Moroni. My point being that when we pray about things, we as members of the church and as outside of Mormonism and outside of Christianity and even outside religion, people are having spiritual experiences where they think they learn something. The thing they learn runs counter and in conflict with others who also have had spiritual experiences. Your friend puts weight on his spiritual experience, and yet he walks away going, no, I'm completely confident that the Book of Mormon is a non-historical piece of work that is still inspiring. Someone else has had spiritual answers that it is a historical work. And so when you understand that the Spirit, as we understand it, that people experience that all over across humanity, and that people have spiritual experiences all over the place, and the answers they take away conflict with each other. 
we can start to step back and go, is a spiritual experience, is a warm, fuzzy feeling, is the hair standing up my arm, is a warm feeling inside my chest, which Anthony, you're a big fan of people becoming aware of a a psychological phenomenon called elevation emotion. Is Is it reasonable for me to set aside all of the problems and put weight on a feeling in an answer to a prayer when everyone has those kinds of feelings and they conflict with each other. And I came out at the same place you did, Alan. I no longer could let the emotional answers trump my logic and rational mind. And the moment I let that go, suddenly those answers stopped coming the way they used to. Thanks, Bill. I would recommend uh, listeners go to a YouTube channel called Anthony Magnabosco. That's M-A-G-N-A-B-O-S-C-O. He practices something called street epistemology, which certainly ties into what we're talking about here on the reliability of these experiences. It's fascinating. He talks to people from a number of different faiths and asks them questions uh, very respectfully about um, how they know that their beliefs are true. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you, Anthony, for, for joining us once again. Uh, we're very excited to, uh, to continue our exploration through the essays, and we will see you again very soon with the next one. You can send us uh, messages on, on Facebook uh, if you would like to hear a, a particular essay sooner than later. And the, as usual, the loud minority will likely get their way. Thanks so much for joining us. 